Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Discipleship Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with this lesson. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Look at the one they will worship. They're not going to worship Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and His Messiah, Jesus Christ. Who will they worship? This is where it's heading. I think we're on page 247 on Footsteps of Messiah. 247, Footsteps of Messiah. If you need a book, I think Lupia can get you a book. And we are smack dab in the middle of the tribulation. This is after the Antichrist has been resurrected from the dead, from the abyss. He is now satanically charged, possessed. He is a Nephilim, obviously, but he's, he is risen from the dead. And now he has the acclaim of coming back from the dead. And so watch how the world reacts to him. Now, if you think what, how the world's reacting now, wait till this guy gets on the, on the scene. And I saw one of his heads as though it had been smitten unto death. And we talked about that. That's the same terminology used for Christ in Revelation, I think, 4 and 5, of uh, the appearance that he had died. And he did die. But, and he says, and his death stroke was healed. So it had come back to life from that. And so look what the reaction of the world is. And the whole earth wandered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon because he, he gave his authority unto the beast. Now what it's saying is it's trying to give you the indication of the satanic trinity there. Because this, the world is goofed up in their thinking, and they see him come back from the dead and resurrect, well, they're going to worship him. But in effect, in worshiping the Antichrist, what does it say they are actually doing? Who are they worshiping? Satan, the dragon. So what Satan has set up is if you worship the Antichrist, basically the Antichrist is the funnel of worship to Satan himself. So what's being set up is a satanic trinity where Satan is playing the father, the Antichrist is playing the son, and then you'll see in just a bit, the false prophet is playing the role of the Holy Spirit. Right? So to worship God, we worship him through Jesus, right? So in this sense, to worship Satan, they worship him through the Antichrist. It's, it's a complete mimic of the, the Trinity. Because he had gave author, uh, his authority unto the beast. So just as God the Father gave authority to Jesus the Son, the Sa- Satan has given authority to his Antichrist. So Satan does have an amount of authority that's given. And they worship the beast, the people of the world, saying, who is like unto the beast, and who is able to make war with them? Because basically they're going to see he rose from the dead in, in a war, and so who can war with him? And he took over the rest of the planet, by the way, after coming back. And was given to him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And the great things he's speaking about is that he is God, he's going to claim himself to be God in the temple, and then the blasphemies, he's going to rail against Jesus. He's going to rail against the Father. He's going to rail against the saints, the Jews, and he's going to blaspheme. So that's, that's what I want you to see. Now, this is interesting. You know, it, it ties into what I'm going to talk about on Sunday as I'm studying 1 John. The way you can tell somebody is satanic is not their behavior. The way you can tell someone is of the devil, speaking from the source of the devil, is by their message. That's how you tell. It's not their behavior. 
And I'll point this out on Sunday, so don't don't tell the people in the in the congregation when we're there. But the Mormons sometimes can outdo Christians in their morality. Outwardly, they can act really nice. But what's the difference? It's the message. It's the message they send. Okay. And here, what what God is saying is, look at His message. What He says, He is not God because He blasphemes the God of heaven. He He says great things. Listen to his message. And there was given to him authority to continue 42 and two months, or basically 42 months. Three and a half years is basically what he's given, the last half of the tribulation. Okay, So really, in essence, if you think of the tribulation, the Antichrist only comes to really power over the planet the last three and a half years. So that sometimes people think, well, he's got control of all seven years. He doesn't. It's the last three and a half years. And he opened his mouth for blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name in this tabernacle, the tabernacle in heaven, by the way. Because since he's been excommunicated out of the tabernacle, right? Remember he got kicked out? Even them that dwell in, in the heaven. So he'll blaspheme against us, say bad things against us, right? And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. The saints, he's talking about the tribulation saints. Jews that come to faith in Messiah, and Gentiles that come to faith in Messiah during the tribulation, and to, and to overcome them. And the idea is he will kill many, many, many Gentile believers. The remnant will be spared, but the Gentile believers are what who gets overcome by him. He does kill two-thirds of Israel, but he kills two-thirds of the non-believing element of Israel. So we have to we have to kind of parse that out and who specifically can he kill and who you know uh, and who's protected. The remnant's always protected of Israel. So it basically, the believers he's killing, he's killing Gentiles, believers. And they're going to be resurrected at the end, though. At the three and a half year mark, when this happens, con- concurrently, there's a lot of events happening concurrently. The same time, a warning is given in Revelation 14 by angels themselves, saying anyone who worships the beast, and his image, you're going to hell. Okay? And so that message is stated even prior to this being issued. At the same time, you have to marry that with Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and Paul indicates that once Antichrist comes out and declares, I am God, God then sends a powerful delusion into the world as a judgment for rejecting the truth in the first half of the tribulation, by the two witnesses, by the 144,000, by all that he has been doing, at that point, you reach the point of no return. If you take the mark, you're not coming back. That's when the no chance happens. Most people say, well, it was after the rapture. That's not what Paul was saying. He says, it's after the declaration he calls himself God, then God issues the powerful delusion. And you don't come back from that one. So I don't want to get it all muddied up, but it's all, if you look at it layers, it's happening at the same time all this is going down. So, uh, let me give you some, let me give you the specific verses. I'm sorry. Uh, cause I just referenced that just off the top of my head. Uh, Revelation 14, three angels. And Revelation 9, oh, sorry, Revelation 14, 9. So this is stacked up with the same passage, okay? Uh, Revelation 14 is a parenthesis. 
The third angel followed him, saying in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worships the beast and his image, and who receives the mark of his name. So, that's when you reach the point of no return. If someone has rejected Christ for the first three and a half years, rejected the two witnesses, rejected 144,000, and then the Antichrist comes into power at that point, and they worship him, it is over. They are not going to be saved. It is basically you sealed your deal on earth when you took his mark. That was the line of demarcation. That's it. So, God's been gracious, I think. He gave him the first three and a half years. You have supernatural witnesses, and you're going to deny it? All right. Point of no return, then. And then he, he goes, um, and there was given to him authority over tri every tribe and people and tongue and nation. So basically, the entire globe. He has authority over the entire globe. And all that dwell on the earth shall worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that has been slain. Now, I, I want to explain that. This is a very interesting passage because I want to marry this with Revelation 3, 5. It's a promise given to the church, one of the churches, who get, uh, or anyone that gets saved out of the church. Um, it says this, he, uh, this is to the church of Sardis. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, I want you to think about that statement, and you marry with this. He is stating, I will blot your name out of my book if you do not come to faith. So what does he what does it imply? Everybody's name is written in the book of life who has ever been given life. So how do you get your name blotted out? You don't you don't believe. What does that do to Calvinism? Uh-oh. They got a problem. It's not just that passage, there's many multiple passages. But over and over again it continues to show I'm putting everybody in my book. I want everyone to be saved. I'm putting their names in there. And the only way you remove your name is you don't believe in me, and then I will blot you out of my book. That is amazing. And I think we've talked about that before. That that dialogue actually is was probably what the angel was telling the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, that you're not going to just die for Israel. You're going to die for the whole world and, and provide salvation for the entire uh human population, if they will come. And, and what I want you to see about that, in that statement, that goes into the debate in Calvinism and and those who are not, about lapsarianism, and I want to get into two details of, of sub-lapsarian, super-lapsarian, infra-lapsarian, that's all Calvinism. But here's, what, here's the basis of it, and this is the bare bones of it. They believe that before God even created us, that he determined who would be saved and who would not be. He already made that decision prior to that. 
So you have like a, that's called supralapsarianism, before the fall, before they lapsed. Supra, that God made that decision who he would save and who would not. And what you start finding out is that that structure of saying those kinds of things, you don't find that in Scripture. You find that in the theology, but you don't find that in Scripture. The, the, the Calvinistic theology, I should say. You don't find it in Scripture. What you find in Scripture are verses like this that everybody was put into the book, which blows away supralapsarianism, infralapsarian, and even sometimes sublapsarianism, that God distinguished between the elect and the unelect. I don't know if I would say that. I would say it's heterodox. And I wouldn't say they're preaching a different gospel. I would, I would just say that they're, they're wrong in secondary understandings of election, eternal security, which they don't believe in. They, persever- they believe in perseverance of the saints. But it starts getting into maintaining salvation. The Wesleyans make the same mistake as the Calvinists. Wesleyans have to prove that... Uh, maintain their salvation by works, but the Calvinists prove to themselves that they're saved by works as well. I don't know if it's a different doctrine. No, no, no. The, the, the average Calvinist in the pew would not understand D.A. Carson, would not understand uh, uh, Piper, and yeah, R.C. And, and those guys. Those guys are, are way off the chart, man. I don't, I'm not saying they're not Christian, I just say they're, it's a heterodox. What I mean is, I, you know, that doesn't make them unsaved. It just makes that their, their version of salvation is very, uh, uh, I'm struggling for a word. Well, yeah, but I mean, they still could present the gospel and get people saved. And they do. They're, they're, the way they present it, but you would have to understand what they're saying to under, to, I agree. Christians, and this is the operative word, should be different. But the scriptures don't say that that's a guarantee. The scriptures say it should happen. We hope it happens. But I know Christians that got saved and they don't show their works. They don't have stuff to, to, they haven't grown. But Calvinism say, well, then they never were saved. Because they believe that works are the evidence of salvation. And I'm saying that's Calvinism's way of saying your works are maintaining salvation. Because they have to look at the works. And so the automatic is, well, you're not saved. Well, no, what the scriptures are saying, you're not discipled. That's your problem. I agree. I, I, and I'm not defending Calvinism to, to, at all. I, I can't stand it. But I gotta be very careful because I agree that hyper-Calvinism could be considered a cult. There's no doubt about it. Uh, moderate Calvinism, I can deal with. Not that I agree with them, but I wouldn't kick them out of orthodoxy. I think hyper-Calvinism has a big problem. And that's what my point is. Like they, they make the same mistake as the Arminian, Wesleyan, does, who actually does believe they maintain their salvation, Versus, I have to prove my salvation. My works assure me of my salvation. And no, that's not how they, and that's not how it works. And so that's why, like, even when we're in 1 John, and I've continued to tell you guys this when we're preaching, they, they interpret 1 John completely different than the way I'm teaching it. It's a test of salvation all through it for them, but I'm saying it's a test of discipleship. That's what 1 John is teaching. 
And also, and I'll, I'll give you a preview of Sunday to add to what you guys are saying. John's going to make the point. I'm going to make the point too. It's the message that signifies if someone's lost or not. It's not their behavior. And may, most people will pull the passage out of Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going I'm to discuss that on Sunday. But they'll take that and, and Jesus says, by your fruit, by their fruit, you will know them. Now you know that passage very well. The context is not saying about behavior. The context he's talking about is false teachers. And he's saying the fruit that you will notice false teachers is what their message is. The fruit, if you're doing fruit inspecting, it's what they say. Because anybody, when he was dealing with the false teachers, dealing with the, the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. Dude, they were more moral than any culture has ever li lived on our planet. That was one of the most moralist cultures ever to exist outwardly. They would have not had what we're having in our country, but inwardly they were messed up, right? It was all outwardly, but it was a moral culture. So he's saying that in the face of a moral culture, and he's saying, don't look at what the Pharisees do, look at what they say. And by what they say, their fruit is how you'll know them. Same thing with a Mormon, a Jehovah Witness. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, they'll act nice, they'll do good things, they're moral people, right? But what do they say? Oh, Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Jesus is the archangel Michael. Bingo, that's it. That's the fruit you're looking for. That's of the devil. And, and anytime you see a man-made system, whether it's Wesleyanism or you see a Calvinism, a man-made system will put doubt about your salvation every time. And the writers never discuss doubt, ever. Paul, John, and John's pretty hard-hitting. But what they will do is challenge the believer's discipleship. That's all they're challenging. They will never challenge salvation. And here's a here's an easy question, and this is Bible 101. Why will Paul and John never say, well, you're not saved then if you don't behave right? Why are they not challenging that? What is the theology behind not challenging that? How are you saved? By faith. It is by grace, yes, but you're saved by faith alone, not works. And so if you get saved, it is simply because of faith. It's not because of what you did. And so that's why they will never challenge that, because you didn't do anything for that. The only thing that will challenge is where you're supposed to be obedient at. That's the only thing they're challenging. Well, it's a, it's the same issue, and this is the, the Calvinists take that James passage and say, see, if you don't have works, then you probably didn't get saved. That's a typical Calvinist. What he is saying is, no, 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 no. To allow faith to work as a believer, you get saved by faith, but faith still operates in how you obey in your day-to-day -day life. So if he tells you, hey, Stuart, you got to stop doing that, man. It's a discipleship issue, but it's a faith issue, though. The reason people don't progress in their discipleship is a faith issue. Not a salvation faith issue, but a faith issue to trust him on an issue. Trust him with his, their money, or trust him with their whatever. And fruit is, 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 is the message. It's the message. And if you see, it, and even when we're looking at the Antichrist, what you're going to see is he will be able to do miracles. He rose from the dead, for goodness sake. The false prophet will be able to do all kinds of miracles. So if it was based on what they did, 
No wonder the people are deceived because they're looking at what he's doing. They're not looking at what he is saying. I'll give you a preview about the false prophet. Think about what this message is. Think about this. The beast from the earth. Listen real closely to the, 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 the tagline on this that John puts. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He's not from heaven. He's from earth. He's, and he had two horns like a lamb. He looks a certain way. You, he looks godly. And spoke like a dragon. Bingo. What did he just say there? He looks good, but the way you identify the false prophet is he speaks. It's the message. That's like I showed you the Pope. He looks like a lamb. He's in donned in white. But when I hear him, I hear the serpent. You see what he's saying? That message is thrown all through the Bible. Don't watch what they do. Watch what they, or hear what they say. Interesting enough, when Paul spoke, what did he say about himself when he spoke? I don't come with rhetoric. Like he was talking about the softest. And, you know, I just come, basically, I'm telling you how it is. And I don't care if I stutter or whatnot. Moses, he stuttered. Okay, but, but when Moses spoke, he, he spoke the words of God. He spoke truth. So his delivery may have not, not been the best. Paul's delivery may have not been the best. He said, I don't come with eloquence to you. Not like these guys like Obama who stands in front of a, telemarketer, uh, a teleprompter. But I tell, what I'd say, though, is true. That's the difference. Which one did I read? Oh, that's uh, Revelation 13, verse 11. Yeah. Okay, let's take a break. We'll come back. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Anchor Discipleship. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has two other podcasts. The first is called The Anchor Sunday Sermons and is filled with pastors' Sunday messages. And the second is The Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. If you enjoy this message and would like to hear them, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services. Rock Harbor Church also has a print-to-order merchandise store. You can shop for Rock Harbor merch at rockharborchurch.store. Support for all three of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Keep looking up for our Redemption Dolls mirror. God bless.